Hello and welcome to the Mindful Men podcast, the show helping men to open up about manhood. My name is Simon Rennie and my aim is to get men talking. From mental health to fatherhood and everything in between, Mindful Men creates a safe space for conversation. Now, before we get into this episode, I want to say a huge thank you for joining me. It means a world for you to join me and talk about men's issues. And if you love what you hear, please subscribe and share the episode with your mates. You can also join the conversation on Instagram and YouTube, and I'd love to connect with you there. But for now, sit back, relax, and let's get mindful. G'day guys, and welcome to another episode of the Mindful Men podcast. I'm your host, Simon Rennie, and today we're getting mindful about mental health. And because we're talking about mental health, it's probably a good time to just remind everyone that if you are triggered by anything that we talk about in today's episode, um, feel free to skip. You don't need to listen to the whole episode, but if you do stick around, make sure you reach out to your support networks afterwards. And I'm really excited about Jeremy Godwin from New South Wales. How are you going, Jeremy? I'm very well. Thank you, Simon. How are you? I am very well. And I'm really excited that you're here because, Jeremy, I love your, your channel, both on YouTube and Instagram, and you do an amazing job of making mental health really simple to to follow and, and engage with. So one bloke to another, thank you for talking about mental health, but also for the for the work that you do. Thank you. Now you're a writer, a podcaster, a YouTuber, and do you have your own private practice? I do. I actually work uh, two days a week seeing people as a counselor and coach. Wonderful. Quite a CV there. And I'm no, keen no. <laughs> to pick your brains about all that. Um, but first I'd like to start off with passing the mic over to you and tell us a bit about your backstory about, you know, who you are, where you grew up and some of the the key moments in your life. Well, that's a small question. (laughs) So (laughs) as you said today, I mean, you know, I'm a writer, podcaster, YouTuber and and counselor. Uh, Originally I worked in the corporate sector and I, if I kind of take a, a brief step back from there, I grew up in Sydney and then around the age of 25 moved to Melbourne I say around the age because it was literally like three weeks before my birthday uh so moved to Melbourne and lived there for 14 years and I kind of worked my way up the corporate ladder and got into like middle management and thought that that was absolutely everything that I wanted and that I was you know heading in the right direction and building a life for myself and unfortunately one day, you know, it's not like this came out of nowhere, but one day I went to work and I could not function. And it was quite weird. And I remember I was sitting in my office and I sat there, put my head in my hands and just thought, I cannot do this. Mm-hmm. And I got in my car and drove home and I actually lost the 25 odd minutes that it took me to drive. I don't remember it to this day and thought, this is really weird. I don't know what's going on. And the next few weeks were some of the toughest of my life. And uh, glad that you said the trigger warning at the beginning, because I'm going to be very upfront very early on in our conversation. Over the next two years, I was suicidal. I was severely depressed and anxious and borderline agoraphobic, didn't want to leave the house and all of these things that were going on. So it was a really challenging time Um, as part of that journey I was not able to continue working I was barely able to leave the house to go to the mailbox Mm -hmm. so working was quite a challenge and that meant that I had to leave my job and I had to try to work out 
what the hell I was going to do with myself. Yeah. And the answer to that question ended up being spend a couple of years trying to sort your shit out because I was a complete mess. Mm -hmm. And the more that I kind of peeled back the layers, the more that I began to understand what an absolute mess things were and just how much I had been self-medicating with food and alcohol and all of these different things over the years. And uh, yeah, long story short, that very long story short, that then brought me to a place where I decided to go back and study psychology and sociology and took me down a different path. And here I am today. You're in the corporate space. And would you describe it as a burnout type thing? Or what What specifically was it about the work? Was it work or was it more than just work? It was more than just work. So there were a number of different factors. It was work was the catalyst. It was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back. I had a boss who had very, very high demands for things, but not an enormous amount of support. Mm -hmm. And I felt that uh, more and more expectations were being put on my department with less money. (laughs) And funny how it works in the corporate world. And I just wasn't coping. And instead of being able to find the strength and put my hands up and say, I am not coping with this, I took it upon myself to try to be the one to fix everything. And that made Mm. things a lot worse. But at the same time as all of that, I was in a complete financial mess. And again, I've kind of briefly mentioned about the fact that I had been doing things that were self-medicating and unhealthy for myself over the years. One of those was a ridiculous amount of spending. Mm. I was a couple of hundred dollars shy of a hundred thousand dollars in debt. Mind you, I was earning a six figure salary, but I was spending money more than I was making it. Um, And a lot of that was about trying to compensate for the fact that I was completely and utterly miserable in my life. But the primary issue for me was a whole bunch of family stuff that had never been dealt with. Uh, My mother was both physically and emotionally abusive. My father cut me off. And then, you know, after sort of both of us being stubborn, for a good three years, he passed from cancer. So I kind of never resolved that. Um, and yeah, anyway, so all of these things that at the time I knew weren't great and I knew they were doing me damage, but I kept telling myself that I was okay and look how strong I am and I'm able to cope and I'm able to push my way through all of this. And the reality is that uh, I knew Like, I know in hindsight that I knew how bad I was, but I was determined that there was nothing in this world that was ever going to make me admit that there was something wrong. Yeah. Why do you think that might be the case? Um, I mean, we could spend an hour and a half just talking about that, but long, (laughs) long story short, uh, both of my parents were shitty people and I very, and I was bullied throughout high school and I very quickly learned from an early age that I needed to succeed and do so on my own terms in order to make something of myself and make a better life for myself than what my parents accepted. And like, I grew up in extreme poverty. I lived in, my parents divorced when I was seven. I lived in public housing. My mother was on a supporting parents pension. And there were times where we didn't have anything to eat for two or three days in a row before payday. And so coming from that kind of a mindset and also a mother who prioritized her own needs financially and emotionally over other people's, 
and being an only child, I, it just I just had this drive that I knew I could be better and that I should be better and that I was not going to let myself be stuck in that trap of that type of a life. Yeah. There was a lot of anger that went with that as well. And I didn't realize that until years later when I went through therapy. And, uh, you know, I still go through therapy now as well, even though I work as a professional in this space. Yeah. At any point, did you, do you think that being a guy might have also contributed? Because I know like a, a lot of the guys I speak with and, and Mindful Men is a concept around supporting men to open up and, and talk openly and candidly as well. Yeah. And for me, like I sat on my mental illness for 20 years before I got the courage and also the push mm. from my wife to go to go and speak to somebody for the first time. And it's been 10 years this year since I first went into that GP and said, I think I've got mental health wow. issues. Um, but yeah, so I sat on that for 20 years. And a lot of that was growing up in northern suburbs of Adelaide, so very working class mm. and living with I had three brothers. And we were all very kind of like those alpha male type household. We played mm. footy and and to be a man was to be hard and tough and all this type of you know, bullshit, really. And I think some of that for me was being a man and men aren't meant to talk and stuff like that. So that kind of kept me away from talking about it. But did you find anything like that or it was completely unrelated to who you are as a person? Uh, no, I think that there's definitely, um, there's some similarities in the respect that although my experiences are quite different, like I said, only child, um, also I'm gay and I was very comfortable and came out at, at a very early age. But in spite of that, I grew up in the outer suburbs of Western Sydney, mm -hmm. which is very, very rough. Where I grew up is very rough. And other people knew that I was different before I knew that I was different, before I understood what it actually meant. And so when you spend your life, regardless of whether you're male or female, but I think that as men, we tend to have this a lot more when you when you spend your entire life being told that you are supposed to be a particular way and if you don't necessarily conform with that particular type of way of being you're constantly on, well okay my experience was that I was constantly on edge I was not safe anywhere I was not safe in public because you know it's not like I was walking around being super flamboyant or anything but just there's almost a it's like people can smell it a mile off do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. And so uh, I was not safe at school. I was bullied relentlessly and physically quite a fair bit. And then I wasn't safe at home either. Mm. And so for me, although I definitely, and I speak to a lot of men who have similar experiences, broadly speaking, in terms of not feeling that they can talk openly about their feelings. I, I think that for me in particular, it was a case of not only was there just nobody to talk to, but it was, if I don't look after myself and if I don't protect myself, then I'm going to continue to be in this vulnerable, vulnerable position, if that makes sense. Yes. Yeah, definitely. So it's kind of like putting a shell on and, and protecting yourself to, to uh, feel safe. Absolutely a suit of yeah. armor without question. It was like, I learned probably at about the age of 15 or so, I learned how to be a complete and utter smart ass. And that almost became a weapon that I mm. wielded. And um, I also began to learn at probably about the age of 17 or so, I began to learn that um, even though 
everything that had happened with being bullied and also at home um, had made me quite introverted and quite mm-hmm. shy and retiring. I found that when I drank, that that brought out a very different side of me and people responded positively. And I took that and I ran with it. Mm. I was a completely different person. I had confidence. I was seen and valued. And that just did something to me completely. And that took a very long time to, first of all, understand that um, and where that came from. And then to kind of begin to dismantle that viewpoint and um, to change that that version of myself that had to drink in order to find strength and confidence. Yeah. And you mentioned self-medication and this kind of, I guess, comes into Mm. that self-medication. One, I had a very similar experience with drinking. It it gave me a bit more confidence to be more social and a bit bit of a a, um, a larrikin and and all that type of thing. Mm. But then it stuck with me and I'm 39 now. And and yep. to this day, like I, I do, you know, sometimes you just get to the end of the day and you need to, well, me personally, and, and I know a lot of other guys drink to kind of just quieten the mind down and 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 deal with other things. And when I was in my darker days, um, I'm a lot better these days, but when in my darker days, it would be a, a very much of a, a self-medication before medication mm. um, process that I'd go through and a lot of alcohol just to numb everything and, and try to feel normal, but also yeah, feel strong as well and, and, and social. But you also mentioned food um, as a self-medication and I haven't really tuned into this before. So can you tell us a bit about how you use food as a self-medication? Absolutely. I mean, food is still an issue for me. I'm currently in the middle of a cycle where I've relapsed back into emotional eating and I've stacked on a massive amount of weight as a result of that. So currently working with my therapist around all of that. Um, Food for me was, food was love. And from my grandmother before she passed in 89, she was, um, bless her heart, but she was a, a feeder. And also just in terms of, you know, I mentioned before about the kind of poverty that I grew up in. And so when my mother got paid, there would be treats and treats were always food related. And so those behaviors were learned very, very early on that food was a reward and that if I was doing good, that I would be rewarded with food. Um, And also I had, when I was seven or six and seven uh, I had a condition called a hiatus hernia which basically just meant that I couldn't I couldn't hold food down I was constantly I was stick thin and eventually they worked out what it was and I had an operation and then after that I was able to eat and mm-hmm. I was treated like the golden child in the family because <laughs> now I was better and here have some more food um and so yeah, food became love. And so when there have been times throughout my life where I'm feeling overwhelmed or mm-hmm. insecure, um, without even realizing that I do it, I gravitate towards food. And you know, I mentioned alcohol before I became sober in 2018. So I'm now at four years, just recently Congrats. celebrated four years sober. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Um, and some people are good at moderation. Other people are not. I fall into the not camp surprise surprise so um for me it was an all or nothing i had to i had to stop drinking and it was just it was not good for my mental health um food is not so easy food is something that is there it's around all the time and it's about how you kind of manage that so yeah is there a certain type of food or is it any food 
not even, not particularly, but basically, I mean, we're not talking about sitting down and eating six apples. We're talking about, you know, the junk food aisle will get heavily mm. shopped. And um, yeah, I don't know. It's a weird thing. It's almost like there's a kind of dissociation that happens when I, when I go and buy stuff. And like I said, I'm currently working really hard yeah. on it in therapy and um, monitoring what I eat. And, you know, my insecurities were triggered quite, strongly a few months ago that led me back into a, like a relapse around emotional eating and so um at the moment i'm still kind of processing this particular bout if that makes sense yeah yeah so it's 2011 and you have your your breakdown would you call it yep and breakdown, i will call it that and it led to you studying again I love to hear a bit about the study and what drew you to go, okay, I'm, I want to go study. You did so, uh, psychology and sociology, I understand. I did indeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tell us about that mindset of, of this period and going into study and, and then what's led on from there. Yeah. Well, basically 2012 was when I left my job and then um, went through therapy and couldn't work. And 2013, I thought that I was feeling better. And so I uh, started applying for jobs and dipped my toe back into the corporate sector and lasted a week and a half in a mm -hmm. job and realized, oh shit, I'm not even remotely capable of doing this. And so then I... I mean, I sat down with my partner and had a, a really long conversation about what the hell am I going to do? And um, my partner had recently been made redundant. And so it was just one of those things where everything became sort of at the exact same time, we were both having conversations about what is next. Mm. And so I had found throughout the process of going through therapy in 2012 and 2013, I found myself really appreciating what my psychologist did. And I remember there being a point probably about maybe, I don't know, five, five months or so into therapy where I sat there and looked at what he was doing. And I kind of felt like I stepped out of myself and looked mm -hmm. at the situation and I went, Oh shit, that's what I want to do. I really feel like I could do this because at that point I was starting I was not even remotely near feeling better but I was starting to feel well enough that I could look at things more objectively I mm. wasn't in crisis mode anymore and to see the journey that he had taken me on in that short-ish window of time from being suicidal to being able to think about my future and objectively so it just it felt really exciting and I felt a really strong pull towards mm. that. So I went off and had a look at what was involved in becoming a psychologist. And I had never gone to university. I had applied um, leaving from leaving year 12. I had applied to get into a journalism degree mm -hmm. and very quickly realized that I just wanted to get a job and get out of home. And it was a safety issue as well as an emotional health issue. Yeah. And so that's exactly what I did. In fact, I got a job halfway through my high school certificate exams, um, which you know, I didn't do too well in my exams because I was too busy working, but um, that for me enabled me to take those steps and get out. So there'd always been a part of me as I'd moved up the corporate ladder that was a little bit self-conscious about the fact that I didn't have a degree under my belt and I was completely self-taught around business. And especially working in operational management and training and recruitment, mm -hmm. there was a lot of stuff where, you know, I'd done courses here and there and diplomas and things like that, but an actual degree was not 
everybody else around me seemed to have them and I felt it felt really obvious that I didn't have one mm -hmm. nobody really gave a shit that was just more about me than anything and my insecurity so I kind of thought okay well if I can't work what am I going to do and started to look at what my options were decided to do a psychology degree got into it did the first year of the psychology degree and went, look, I like this, but there's a lot involved in becoming a psychologist. Mm -hmm. I think I might add sociology on so I've got something so I don't go insane. Because um, I'm kind of, I'm a bit of a nerd about understanding us as individuals and then all of us as a collective group and how that fits in with one another. And I did organizational behavior, I think, in my first or second year and I went, oh, I like this. So yeah, ended up bolting sociology onto it and then here we are. Wow. Did you find going to study in, at, at university kind of enlivened the mind? I, I felt when I had started my master's of social work, so I did, I did a bachelor mm -hmm. of social science way back after high school. Then I had 15 years or so in the public service. And then in 2018, I thought I'd, my brain felt dead. It felt like it wasn't learning anything new. I wasn't going anywhere up the ladder. So then I thought, and I always wanted to work in mental health. I just didn't know how to do it. And I, I stumbled across this social work degree. And, and then as soon as I sat in, I think one of my first lectures was mental health, actually, and, and mm -hmm. started conceptualizing me within not only my own little bubble of me and my family, but also me and community and in the mm -hmm. world. And then you got all these, you know, capitalism and feminism and all these isms and, and all that. All the isms. <laughs> <laughs> and my brain just came alive and, and, and it, yeah. I like how you said like it's almost like you stepped out of yourself to critically reflect mm. on yourself within you know within your own context and and so that was my experience did you you feel the same when you started studying absolutely it was it was the weirdest thing i'd ever done um simply because when you go off and do a diploma level course and i've done mine through i've done one through tafe and i've done another one through a um like an independent provider, a, mm -hmm. a private provider. And so it's very different. Your hand is held through all of those. Whereas when you go to university, the information is so vast and you need to very quickly adapt with critical thinking skills. And I think that's the thing that like completely random comment that I'm about to make here, but I think the critical thinking skills is actually something that's kind of like missing a lot. And so being able to, in general, anybody being able to spend time developing their critical thinking skills is going to open your mind and get you to think about different perspectives. So yeah, I found it incredibly enlightening. I did mine through distance education, mm -hmm. um, but I, I started it when I was living in Melbourne in, back in 2014. And so it was, you know, I had an opportunity to go to campus a few times and, and obviously going for exams and things. And it was weird because you'd walk in and I was, at the time I was what, 36. And um, I'm now 46. And I don't think those numbers add up. Anyway, I was in my 30s, something like that. I've lost track of my age at this point. <laughs> I'm currently 46, older. I know that much. Um, so anyway, so I'm, I'm in my mid, mid to late 30s and going into exam rooms where everybody's like, basically half of my age mm. and it felt really weird um but again like I said I did distance education so we left the city in 2015 which meant that the bulk of my degree was done in a room not dissimilar to this in the middle of the countryside and the only time I ever saw a human being was when I went to an exam center so yeah, yeah it was it was a weird experience going from someone who got a job you know through your through your high school certificate and then yep. 
having your career, having having your breakdown, and then going into a, I guess, a, a higher education environment, was that daunting in itself? Oh, absolutely. I, you want to trigger every single insecurity that you have. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I'm prone or have been in the past a lot more prone to perfectionist tendencies for things. And so when I was like writing essays and things and they were coming back and I was getting credits, which is not bad for a first attempt, but I was getting pissed off that I wasn't getting distinctions and high distinctions. And I think the way that you write for the business world is very different to the way that you write from an yeah. academic perspective. You've done your master's, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, as it's just, it, you're writing for a different audience and there's, there's different considerations that you have to put in. And my writing style in university as well as now is very practical in its orientation and just very, I will talk until the until the cows come home, but I have a point and it's very direct. Whereas in uni, you need to very much be able to look at all sides of the argument. Whereas I'm kind of like, let's just sift through all this nonsense shit and get into the actual heart of the matter. And here's some evidence that backs that up. So yeah, it's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. And I remember going back, well, the first time I went to uni, I was based, barely there. I, I would go for the bare minimum lecture tutorial and then I'd go off to work myself and mm -hmm. I was probably working more than I was studying at the time. But then when I became a mature age student, it was a completely different. I was very committed to, to learning and absorbing yeah. and trying my best to, to, to get good grades, but really grasp the concepts as well. And I think for anyone listening, who's thinking about mature age study, it is an amazing thing to do because you're more committed. Absolutely. You're not just there because you've finished high school. You don't really know what's next. You're there because you want to change your life or change somebody else's life through further study. So highly recommend it to anybody. But as you said, it is a daunting. And even though I've been through my bachelor's degree and then going in when I started my master's, I was very much like a, a first, first time schooler as well. I didn't know what I was yeah. doing. I completely forgot how to write academic papers and, and research. And But you, you get those skills pretty quickly as well. You do. Um, you know, I, I think though also the other bit that I would pick up, especially for anyone who might be considering it, is once you're in your 30s or your 40s or whatever the case might be, you have a stronger sense of who you are mm -hmm. and who you are not. And I think no disrespect to anyone who is like 18, 19 or 20, but you think you know who you are at those ages, you don't. And yeah. you find it, and that's just part of life. That's part of the journey. You find out who you are. And it's not until kind of your late 20s, early 30s that you start to go, oh, everything I thought I knew about the world when I was 18 <laughs> is a load of shit. Yeah. And then, then you get to the end of your 30s and go, oh, everything I thought I knew when I was 27, not right. After all, you know, it's just part of the process of learning. It's part of the yeah. process of life. So, so following your degree, you, you, you mentioned before you, you've got a private practice. Did you do that straight away or did you test the, test the waters through a, another practice or anything like that? No, I tried to go back into the business world after oh, I finished okay. my degree. I live in the I live in the country, so it's a small town, and there aren't a massive number of opportunities. And I was not even remotely thinking that I would I would try. And, and you know, I could have done another maybe two years, or not maybe, definitely minimum two years in order to become a registered psychologist. And I just it 
research methods than statistics made my head explode. It was like trying yeah. to learn Swahili with a coloring in book. So I just decided, no, not for me, not for me. Right. So I finished my degree, graduated, started looking around for jobs and I got into working in the employment services sector, which is, you know, I ended up working in disability employment services, which is effectively on paper is helping people to find jobs mm. with a disability. Uh, the reality of it is you're basically Centrelink, but you help people at the same time. Yeah. So my, I loved that job because I was able to help people navigate the system. Mm. And because when I had my breakdown, I couldn't work. So I had to navigate that system. And so I felt like I was finally able to pay it forward. Um, but it just, outside of the one-on-one -on -one time with clients, realistically the system was set up to treat people like a number and it's just not for me so i actually in 2019 um long story short by that point i was an area manager and i one of my team members made a mistake which i signed off on so i was responsible and i went the mistake got found out and i went to go argue it and i was something yelled in my head and said this is the opportunity that you were looking for leave mm -hmm. take responsibility for what happened don't fight it but use it as your reason for leaving yeah. and so i surprised the hell out of my boss and went actually i'm gonna i'm gonna swallow my pride on this one and i'm gonna say i'm responsible and i'm tendering my resignation he's like you don't have to do that I'm like that's fine i will so the company, it's a very competitive industry. The company had a policy of if somebody resigned in management, they were walked. So I, within two and a half hours, was sitting back on my couch wondering what the hell just happened. <laughs> and then stopping and thinking, what am I going to do with myself now? And for the month leading up to it all happening, it's not like this just came out of the blue. I had actually, and I stumbled across this pa these papers when I was cleaning the house the other day, I was actually doodling in between my work, like at lunchtime, um, ideas for this podcast called Let's Talk About Mental mm. Health. And so when I quit, I had some money in the bank, not a huge amount, but I live in a country like, you know, everything's pretty much the smell of an oily rag in terms of cost. Um, and so I just spoke to my partner and said, hey, I want to do this for six months full time. And here we are. Wonderful. So let's talk later. about mental health. This is, and you know, this is how I connected with you in the first place was I stumbled across your show. Um, and as I said before, I love how simple yet insightful the show is. It, it is straight to the point. Thank you. And it's very thank entertaining you. as well because mental health can be a bit of a, a draining topic, but you do bring some life to it. Right. So thank you for that work. So, so you talk about, you know, this is, this was the opportunity to start the show. Why were you thinking about doing a mental health show? Well, I felt like I, I spent four years doing a degree. It was supposed to be three years, but I ended up having to spread it out over four years because I was on antidepressants and finding it hard to study. So, you know, I couldn't do it. I was doing like a 75% load. So I spent four years of my life studying this degree. And I, to be really honest, it was like, well, I should probably do something with it. Mm. Um, but also the whole point of why I started the degree, to come back to the question that you asked me earlier about why that particular degree, I was inspired by my psychologist and I wanted to be able to pay it forward yeah. in terms of what I had done. And this 
felt like a way that I could start because I love writing I've always loved writing and I'm weirdly enough I'm one of the strange few percent of people who actually enjoys public speaking and so I thought how can I kind of combine those two things and how can I start to share some of the things that I found myself when I was trying to work out what the hell was going on with my yeah. own mental health and for me one of the things that I got really frustrated about and this happened also a lot when I worked in the corporate sector is I find a lot of, there are a lot of people out there who talk about subjects like mental health, human resources, operations, all of these different things who have gone off and done degrees on it, but have no clue whatsoever of what it's like in the real world to mm. actually live that experience on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I felt like I, there were these things that I had come across when I was trying to find practical tools that were simple and straightforward and that actually worked and that weren't just based on opinion. And I, I mean, when I say that I have spent so much time on the internet over this past decade, sifting through nonsense crap to mm. get to the core of things that actually make sense and actually work. Uh, I mean, I've lost count of the amount of time that I've spent doing that. And I just thought, you know what? I want to have something that feels like I'm actually doing something with the experiences that I had. And there was a, I'm not going to go into a huge amount of detail about it because it's, it's quite a personal thing, but there was mm -hmm. a workshop that I went to a few years ago when I was in the middle of my recovery. I think it was about 2014 that a friend of mine introduced me to. And there was a really crystal clear moment of, of just, clarity and awareness that I had in the middle of that workshop where I realized that for me everything that had happened to me had happened for a reason I just needed to figure out what I was going to do with that and that's the drive that I have behind what I do I feel like if I can take the experiences that I went through and broaden them out because obviously my experience is different to yours is different to the next person's but if I can broaden them out and look at them from a macro level and give people tools and resources that actually make sense then everything that I went through actually serves some kind of a purpose yeah and did it start That's off as I mean. the podcast or did you do the YouTube thing as well because you're on both um and podcast, podcast first but I, I was terrified of putting myself on YouTube, not even going to lie. I started YouTube in January of 21 mm -hmm. um, and I started the podcast back in October, 2019. So yeah, it took me a while to get around to doing YouTube. I remember the similar feeling like the first time I put my face on my Instagram, you know, cause my Instagram right. started through my burnout um, in 2020 and I'd yep. use it to start off with like daily affirmation type stuff, trying to pet mm -hmm. me up and, and hopefully it helped other people as well. And then eventually, I, I think I did a hundred posts or something. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, maybe I should put a face to this page. Uh -huh. I me, know that feeling well. <laughs> me clicking, clicking an upload was a, a huge step. And I'm like, oh, what just happened there? And then the same happened when I, I put my face up on YouTube and, and started my podcast. It was a big like, oh my god, I'm putting my name and face out there, and and it's terrifying. But at the same time, it was also exhilarating and and, and yeah. fun as well. So. Has the journey like on the podcast and the YouTube channel been smooth or is it, have you ever been sitting there like, like a lot of us going, is anybody listening or anything like that? Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, definitely. Look, um, the first week I had four listens and one of those was me testing the audio. <laughs> so it was really three listens, right? Um, 
And then the following week, it was, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. I think it was like 10 or 12 or something. And I was so excited because I'm like, look, 300% growth. Uh, and so, you know, it, it took a really long time in terms of quite a few months where it was struggling around sort of like 100, 150 listens a week. Now, I don't think it matters how big your show goes when your heart is when your heart is really in what you're doing and you're really emotionally attached to it. Um, like I, I now average over 30,000 a week and I have listeners in 172 countries worldwide. And I still, I still have insecurities when it comes to the numbers. I don't like admitting that out loud. My therapist and my business coach know it because I talk about it all the time with them. Um, and it's not about the fact that I want or need more. It's the fact that I feel that I feel really emotionally attached to this thing that I've created and I want to see it do well because I know that when more people hear it, then more people find it helpful. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, it's, it's certainly it doing a lot good. better than it was in those first few months. <laughs> <laughs> so I've got some hope. <laughs> oh, um, definitely. It, Trust it me. Is a, it is an amazing, um, you know, show that you put on and, and, and hats off to you. But And you've just released your book, which you've got in the background here. I can see it on the bookshelf. Um, I'm keen to purchase that, one myself. <laughs> but tell us about the book. You know, what made you put pen to paper after all these years on, on, on the audio channels? Yeah, to, to actually make a physical book. Well, you know, there's a lot of content that I've created over the years and the topics are selected in advance. I mean, I'm currently planned out for over a year's worth of content. When I say planned out, just at a high level, but um, there's there's a lot of information that's out there and it's rare that people who are discovering my work now would necessarily go back and listen to, I mean, I've just released episode, what is it? 147 comes out the week that we're recording this. So uh, it, it means that there's a lot of stuff there and I felt that there was an opportunity to revisit some of the older content and look at it with a fresh perspective. The majority of the stuff in the book was written pre-pandemic. So it's like reading a history book. And uh, and, and I think there's a, a lens that gets put over all of that as well in terms of kind of the, I don't know. I don't know if anybody else feels this, but I, I, I watch stuff or read stuff from 2019 now and just think, oh, bless the naivety of it all. We had no idea what was coming. Uh, you know, and so there's a bit of that aspect as well. And even revisiting one of the episodes that was written i think in the first month or two of the pandemic where you know i, I like i'm a realistic optimist but even i was going oh so in the next few weeks <laughs> like you know thinking thinking this will be over nice and quick and here we are 2022 still talking about the damn thing so but i think it, you know that's been really life-changing and so what i wanted to do was to take some of the topics but weave them together as a narrative in a very different way. So what I look at is the foundations of well-being, mm -hmm. your relationship with yourself in terms of your internal world, and then your relationship with others, so the external world, and all of the content that is in there, although they are older episodes that I've created, they're all reviewed and revised. So there's brand new content that's been added as well. It's pretty much a kind of, I grew up with choose your own adventure books and I've realized yes, lately yes. <laughs> that I have been, I have been doing the whole choose your own adventure thing so much in my work. And so it's an opportunity for you to be able to kind of dip in and out and pick the pieces that work well for you, give it a go, see if it works, come back, try some new things, build on it over time. Yeah. And do you, do you 
put much of yourself and your story in the book or is it more just a high level look absolutely i mean look i do it in the podcast and youtube as well um but but definitely in the podcast there's not a i don't think there's a single episode i've ever released where i haven't told some kind of a personal story uh there are times in the early days where i was kind of like oh am i oversharing and then it Mm. got to a point where Actually, I think it might have been around episode, I'm looking up because I've got all my episodes listed because I, I do tend to kind of reference back rather than like repeating the same thing. I'll say, you know, hey, if you want to talk about perfectionism, go check out episode 98. Uh, but I think that the turning point for me was the grief episode, which was all the way back in episode 26 in early 2020. And I had just lost my cat at the time that and like I'd picked the topic months in advance and then it just happened to coincide that it was the week that I'd lost yeah. my cat and as when I said lost she died I'm not saying that she just disappeared so um, show up 10 years you know, later <laughs> right surprise uh but no so my cat had died and I had this you know she was 17 years old and I had this enormous emotional attachment to her and um obviously and I was devastated and it was the beginning of the pandemic and so I that episode for me is one of i think the most powerful because it's very focused on the on the listener in terms of being able to provide practical straightforward advice but it's the tie it was the turning point for me of where i just revealed more of my actual soul rather than just dribs and drabs and since then i i will very happily share personal stories in all of my work and i do that in the book as well because i think it helps to show how one person's journey can relate even though our circumstances are different um we have similarities in the social work space when i was studying and we used to get told a lot that not to to bring too much of ourselves into our work and and I'm mm. now thinking more about into your private practice and 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 <clears throat> without you telling any detail of the clients that you work with or anything like that. Yeah. But is it the same in psychology where they don't they want you to separate yourself from the therapy you provided? My my sense is that the more well not 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 too much, but if we provide a little bit of ourselves in therapy, but also you know in the work that we do on Instagram podcasts and all that type of stuff, that we can highlight that shared lived experience and there's a real great value in that shared lived experience do you find the same in your work or do you keep them yeah absolutely no absolutely i do um i'm very hyper conscious when i'm working as a counselor that day one of the diploma for counseling is basically words to the effect of not projecting your own life experiences onto mm. others and i 100 agree with that but the key word there is projection. I do not project. I do not assume that my experiences are the same as your experiences. What I do believe is one of the things that has time and time again come up in feedback that I've received from people on social media and emails and whatever has been that there's a level of connection that they have with me even though their circumstances might be different the fact that someone has been through something similar helps them to see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not a train Mm. so it's very much I think that there is a fine line and I think that as a practitioner if you approach it thoughtfully you can do it in a way where you are very considered in what you choose to share or not share and how you do so So I just had a client last week where 
I felt it was appropriate to share a personal story, but used it as an example mm. and then used it as a, a starting point to get the client to talk through their own journey and possible options. And it was a lot, it was just a lot more effective. And I mean, you're talking about people and yeah. I think there's an expectation for us as professionals that we have to be detached. And I've been on the other side of the table as a client. And when you've got somebody who is detached, you sense it a mile off. Yeah. So, but don't just jump into it without any kind of thought because yeah. people aren't paying to hear about your life. They're paying to hear <laughs> about theirs <laughs> and solutions, but you can do that in a way that is personable and connecting as long as you do it thoughtfully. Yeah, I felt the same when I went through, I've been through psychologists, counsellors, and but when I went through my burnout, I specifically chose a mental health social worker because that's I was doing the social mm -hmm. work degree. So I understood the language as well. But I found one that was experienced in burnout. And, you know, she shared a, a, a small snippets of her burnout. And it just made the process mm -hmm. a lot easier to I understand what was going on within me, but also see, as you said, see that light at the end of the tunnel. That's not a train. Um, that's right. hope and recovery and so forth. So the, yeah, for any practitioners out there, and I talked to a lot of social workers on this, on this podcast and psychologists as well is, is yeah. I liked how you said, don't project it, just use it you know, thoughtfully and within context. And as maybe a, a, a thought provoker or, or a conversation starter or, or even a critical reflection moment as well. Um, it's a highly powerful tool. But Jeremy, um, where can people access you or where can they find you? I know I've got your, your link to your website and I'll be putting that into the, into the show notes. But what about your private practice? If people are listening today and they're interested in working with you, is, are your books open? At the moment, I'm not actively taking on clients. However, that doesn't mean that I won't be at some stage in the future uh so you can find find me at jeremygodwin.com.au i do have a separate website for the podcast as you mentioned which is let's talk about mental health.com.au uh, but you can also find me on social media so apart from the podcast that i release which is you know apple Podcasts and spotify and all of the platforms uh and my youtube uh yeah so i'm on social media so i post daily over on jeremy godwin official where i do mm -hmm. uh daily reels that are life advice that doesn't suck i'm fairly blunt and straight i love that as well. I... I do love that <laughs> thanks uh and then i also post additional mental health focused um value-based sort of like action stuff on lta mental health which is the podcast official account awesome we'll, yeah, we'll put all the links to that in the show notes for anyone who wants to thanks. touch base with you or check out your work and i do highly recommend yeah, check out your podcast. It, it is it is great. And and yeah, socials as well. Uh, but two more questions and I'll let you head off for the rest of your day. Um, thinking about your journey, and I want you to picture a listener out there who might be struggling with their mental health. They've never got help before, but they're, and they're not really sure where to start. What's some words of advice that you could give based on your own experience and both professional and personal to maybe help them take that first step towards a recovery? It's a big question. And I think if you've never asked for help before, that's the biggest hurdle. It's the fear factor. It's the being concerned of being judged and all of those things. But what I will say is people who care about you care about you through thick and thin. And if you aren't doing well, let somebody know. 
speak to your closest friend. Speak to a family member who you have a good, solid, positive relationship with. Find someone who you love and trust, who is supportive and non-judgmental, and just tell them you're going through a rough time and see where the conversation goes. Because it's that first time of opening your mouth and saying, I'm not coping, that's the hardest. And when those words finally come out of your mouth to somebody else and you are seen and valued and supported, then you'll begin to find the strength that you need to be able to take the next steps. One of the greatest conversations that I ever had was with my GP when I finally admitted after a few months to myself that I was going through severe, severe anxiety and depression um, post-breakdown, but I had not admitted it to my doctor and I had just focused on the physical symptoms and he couldn't work out what was wrong with me. <laughs> That's why. Uh, and then I actually sat down with him and said, look, I need to be really honest with you. And I told him everything that was going on. And I mean, I'd been seeing this, this same doctor for a few years at this point. And he leaned over and put his hand on my shoulder and said, you'll be okay. And I burst into tears because I felt relief. And I felt like I didn't imagine that I would receive such kindness. And it was the turning point. It was the moment that I was then able to start to find the strength to tell the other people in my life that I needed to tell. And it was also the point where I found the strength that I needed to make the changes that I needed to make. So start with that first conversation. It's the hardest possible, possible one that you'll ever have. But trust me when I tell you that things can get better and they will get better and they do. Perfectly said. And that was my my exact experience 10 years ago. So um, certainly is the hardest and it gets easier every single time. Um, doesn't make it any easier, any easier to talk about. Like we're talking about painful things, um, but just the, the act of talking is gets easier over time. So it does. It does. Now, the last thing I'll ask you is I love to ask every, this of every, every guest that I have is for you to plug something that makes you feel good. So it doesn't have to be a mental health thing or, or anything we've talked about today. And the idea yep. is it gives value to, to the listeners out there who might be looking for something to cheer them up today or, or whatever. Um, so yeah. So what's something that makes you feel good at the moment? My go-to is the TV show, What We Do in the Shadows. I am obsessed. So if you're not familiar with it, it's an adaptation of the New Zealand movie from a while ago, like 10 years ago or something, um, of the same name by Taika Waititi. And um, it's an American TV show, but it's got um, it's got like the guy from The Office, Matt Berry is in it. And it's a bunch of vampires living in a dilapidated house in Staten Island in New York. And they're just idiots. And <laughs> it is, it's like, it's a mockumentary and it's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I absolutely love it. And it's the happiest half an hour of television every single week. <laughs> where do you watch that? Where, where is it? It's, uh, it's currently on Foxtel. So Foxtel. But I'm like, I'm a nerd that I actually reactivated my Foxtel because the <laughs> season four is on at the moment. And so as soon as it's done, I'm canceling Foxtel again, and then I'll buy it so I can rewatch it. And it's been renewed for seasons five and six. So I'm very happy. <laughs> so that's my go-to. <laughs> I did that for The Walking Dead to only to discover that they're still walking around and there's nothing happened for the last six seasons. How, <laughs> how are they still going? How are there still people walking around on The Walking Dead? I don't understand. <laughs> Nothing happens. You're absolutely spot on. <laughs> anyway, I gave up after season three. 
Jeremy, it's it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show, mate. I, I really have enjoyed our, our chat and I love your work. Me too. Um, so so thank you so much for for being a bloke and being honest and open and, and vulnerable and and sharing your story because it certainly does help, you know, people across the world, like as you as you're talking about with your podcast and and so forth. And and I look forward to catching up again maybe in the future to see how things are going with your second and third book. Um <laughs> I'm sure that's on the card. Working on it at the moment. <laughs> But yeah, so thanks, thanks so much for your time, mate. Thank you, Simon. I really appreciate it. Great to talk to you. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure that you like it and leave a comment and then share it with your mates. Also, subscribe to the channel and hit that notification bell so that you don't miss a moment of future episodes to come. Thank you.